Hello and welcome to the D2C Podcast. I'm Eric Dick. Today we're diving deep with Sean Frank, the Einstein of e-com, the CEO of Ridge Wallet, which hit $50 million in revenue in 2020 and hasn't slowed down since. Sean is a news and analysis junkie. He hangs out on earning calls and 10K reports just to get an edge to really figure out what's happening in the space and what he can do about it to make his business thrive. This episode features Sean's scalding hot takes on the current recession. He'll explain why 2022 looks a lot like 1980s Japan in terms of stagflation, as well as what brands can do to trim costs and what opportunities our listeners should be looking for in these trying times. You'll hear all about his thousand-person influencer launch for Father's Day. You'll learn why SPACs are shady AF and what you can do about it. You'll also hear why Sean could care less about other wallet companies and why writing is a superpower that every CEO should have. On with the show. professional stock trader, you're trying to achieve alpha, which is beating beta, whatever the S&P 500 does every single day, right? And so achieving alpha is getting better results than that. So there's a lot of people who think they're really smart over this past five years or whatever because they're growing and things are going great or whatever, but in reality, they're just hitting beta. The entire market was growing. If you were selling home workout stuff in 2020, you're not a genius, you're just lucky. You know what I mean? Like It's like right place, right time for most people's success. Now, we're in a down market. E-commerce penetration is going down. Less transactions will happen online this year than last year. Is your share of transactions going up? Like You really are competing for less space now. Thousands of people have jump-started their TikTok content strategy using Coley's TikTok Creative Brief template. That's because it has all the steps for successful creator collaborations and best practices to create fun and engaging TikToks. If you haven't grabbed your copy yet, don't worry. Coley just dropped a brand new version of their popular template filled with even more tips and insights to level up your TikTok game. Head to coley.com slash TikTok to download your free copy and start creating TikToks for your brand that people actually want to watch. Welcome to the D2C podcast, Sean. I'm really happy to have you here. I caught a bunch of your Twitter threads kind of caught my attention recently with you talking about kind of what's happening in the world. I just think there's kind of a, a lot of anxiety out there among uh, D2C side owner operators right now about kind of waiting for the other shoe to drop, trying to find where bottom is in this current economy. I know you've been uh, traversing this landscape for such a long time. Tell me a little bit about where your head's at now regarding the current state of e-commerce. Yeah, so I've been thinking about e-commerce every day of my life for like 10 years at this point, right? Um, You're obsessed. You have to be obsessed, you say, right? Yeah, yeah. Like I don't have any friends. I don't have any hobbies. So this is like all I basically do, right? And I think people who are hyper successful in in any field like have that level of of obsession. Like I know the guy from Cuts. If you ever see him on, on on Twitter, and him and I text often, and that guy is tenacious. <laughs> like like he doesn't even want to win. He wants to be the most winning, right? Um, and I just 
anyone I've talked to that has a hundred million dollar a year business or above like has that level of insanity. It's straight up insanity. So my insanity manifests as like reading and, and trying to learn as much about this specific thing as possible to the point that it's a detriment to probably my health and my relationships around me. Uh, like I live in LA and someone asked me who I was voting for for mayor and I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about. And they're like, yeah, there's a massive mayor race going on. There's this big thing. Like all of these like famous people are running. I'm like, never even heard of it. I know about it. I know about Michael Schellenberger and, uh, and all those folks. Yeah, totally missed me. I didn't hear about the Ukraine conflict until like a, the week after it happened. Uh, so anyway, I have no idea what's happened in the world, but know everything about e-commerce. Um, what do I think is going on? Uh, I've been talking about like an end of the good times for whatever, and that like this storm's been like on the backseat brewing for however long. Um, and we're, we're seeing that wave crash. The public market's already reflected that in Shopify, that like investor appetite is not in e-commerce anymore as the world opens up. And that was an expected pullback. I mean, 70%, 80%, whatever it is, is very drastic, right? But it always should have fell 50%. It always should have fell 60% as soon as stuff started opening back up and like e-commerce isn't having the growth it's it's had before, right? So e-commerce penetration as a percentage of total retail transactions in the US has gone up 1% every year for 20 years, right? That's like, that's what lands us at this like 20% number we're at right now. And then COVID happens and it takes us up to 30%, right? Puts us five or 10 years in the future. And now COVID's in recession. I'm not gonna call it gone or whatever, right? But it feels pretty gone across the country. At least long for like, t- like total lockdowns aren't a thing in North America right now. But because of that, we're the first time ever e-commerce penetration is declining year over year. We've never experienced that, right? Also, it, the 10 years I've been doing this has been a bull market the entire time. We haven't had a down market for 10 years. So a lot of things coming together to, to make this crash extremely healthy in terms of like the overall industry, economy as a whole, whatever, right? And then it's just like, what do you think happens? Like, what's the what's the outcome, right? And if you're really familiar with history, the, the worst outcome possible would be a massive stagflation event similar to what Japan has experienced for 30 years. Their stock market has never reached the highs of 1989. So like over 30 years of, of never reaching that same level of, of, of wealth, Negative even growth. with inflation, yeah, even with everything going on. And you can point to a lot of reasons why the U.S. economy is different, right? You can point to a lot of reasons of like why that particularly happened. But there's two main things that, that really make it similar, and that's um, the unprecedented rise in asset prices. So the, the, the 80s in Japan and the past 10 years in, in the U.S. have very similar track records in stock price appreciation and then uh, asset appreciation of include houses. Very similar, right? Uh, they're real estate prices 3x in like a five-year period and ours is 3x in like a 10-year period. It's like very similar. And then the other thing is that uh, they were trapped. They didn't have uh, any economic tools left because their interest rates were already at zero. And that's the same thing we're coming off of, right? The, the, the Fed has to raise interest rates into a recession. And that's really what caused uh, or one of the main contributors to the Japanese stagflation for 30 years. Were they printing as much money as we're printing in Japan? Did they have that problem as well? Do you know? Uh, you know, I didn't look at, at currency creation. I'm sure they were, they were playing fast and loose, right? Uh, 
but yeah, that's that's another very uniquely American thing. Uh, but look, I recently Canadian too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, dude. People always want to talk about uh, the U.S., but Canada has the exact same problems, but like fifty percent worse. I don't know. I think people in the U.S. don't realize that that like uh, housing price in terms of average income to housing price, like that's a ratio you look at to see if things are unsustainable, and it's like. 50% worse in Canada than it is in the U.S. As hard as things feel like in the U.S., for some reason, Canada's a lot worse. So uh, We just don't complain about it. We're just like, okay, well, I guess that's what it is now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, man. Um, it, who knows what the fuck's going to happen, right? There's there's a bunch of different scenarios. Everything that's happening right now is, is an expected correction. When we started talking to bankers, you know, as your, as your fast-growing econ brand, over the past 10 years, you meet financial professionals or bankers or whoever, and they kind of like help you through that process. You talk to PE groups, talk to whoever to help navigate like, and protect your wealth you're building. And every private equity group for the past five years has been like, yeah, it should correct at some point, right? Like they've, they've always like, want, like expected this correction um, and it happened. So that's what we're dealing with. Um, so it's interesting you say it happened. So you were like, I guess, I guess what a lot of people are looking for, and you're not going to be able to predict this necessarily, but is the bottom is like, when can, when do we think that this, that the correction will be corrected? Like it's, to me, it still feels like we're, a, we're, we're just entering the bottom. It feels like where, where do you think we're at in terms of the timeline of the bottom? Yeah, look, I'm, I'm, I, I don't really know anything about the stock market. I'm the worst stock picker on earth. But what I'll say is I posted a thread about this and, and it's it's typical for crashes in American history. So if you look at the dot-com crash and you look at the great financial crisis or whatever, you get a five or a seven year setback, right? And that would be the stock, the, the S&P 500 going to like 2,000 to 2,200, somewhere in there. So we're still like 40% off of bottom. Um, but then the other thing, my, my CMO Connor and I talk about this all the time, we talked about like the falling knives theory, that like you don't want to be the hand to catch the falling knife. But because people seem so eager for a crash, there's a lot of hands. And eventually those hands will stop the knife. You know what I mean? Like it'll cut a couple people, but eventually there's enough meat and bone there that it's going to stop the falling knife. So it's very hard to say. This was an expected, anticipated, and almost celebrated crash, which is a very unique thing we've never had before. Uh, maybe the dot-com bubble was kind of like this because I was like seen. But anyway, look, it, yeah, we're 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 still free falling, man. I think I think it could go another forty percent. Basically, the most realistic scenario is that Q two enters us into uh, a technical recession. The the Fed will come out. The numbers will come out that like we've had two quarters of uh, economic. Uh, sorry, G GDP decline. That'll trigger it being a technical recession. The markets will freak out on that. They'll fall again. All of Q3 will, will freak out. And then we probably have a strong Q4 that brings us out of the recession. And then things things start looking better in uh, Q1 2023, but the stock market's probably down to like the, you know, definitely in the 2000s. And how does this affect digital? How does this affect like our, our world and the people listening? Well, if you're an agency, you have to get incredibly good, incredibly fast, right? There's going to be less brands. That's the thing. We've already, I've already known friends who've gone out of business. As credit dries up in the U.S. and in China, China still has a lot of manufacturing, right? A side note is China is the most in-debt country in terms of debt to GDP on earth. Like we hear about government debt. We never hear about company debt. And China has insane company debt. Like every company in China is leveraged 
two to three X more than their uh, Western counterparts because they've had fucking state subsidized cheap debt forever, just grow, 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 grow. That market's tightening and potentially is closed by now, right? So they're not able to get any more credit. Uh, so their payment terms are gonna get way more strict. And then as the US credit market dries up, which we've already seen, right? Interest rates rising up and like people being less willing to, to do deals, especially with risky merchants, it just leads to defaults. It's like, if you can't pay to acquire new customers and your customer base is too small to support your business and you can't get new product and you owe money to manufacturers, it's like, and you end up in this death spiral. So, uh, and which, credit used to cover that up a little bit. You do, you know, cre credit was cheap enough that you could you could float for longer. But I feel like as the tide goes out, I was even just saying like consumer debt reached another high in May. So that shoe still hasn't dropped yet. Where where consumers are still taking on debt to float their lives. But if the rates continue to rise and the consumer confidence lowers, you feel like they're going to be less likely to want to take on more debt. Yeah, hundred percent. And there's been a boom of debt providers catering to e-commerce brands in the past four years, right? The ClearCodes of the world, the Wayflyers of the world, whatever, right? And a lot of those shops are very good, legitimate shops, but there's each one of those business models has 100 competitors. And we've watched Brex has removed accounts, right? Uh, there's, there's other companies in the credit card space that are just straight up like defaulting right now in the corporate credit card space. And you're 100% right that uh, everything I've said about that, that dance about buying customers and then buying your goods, sell those customers and building brand, like that, that cycle has been fueled by negative cash conversion cycles where like you never have any money, but you're getting money from this guy, you're paying it to this guy. And uh, that cycle will become a lot more difficult to balance. It'll, potentially you, you won't be able to do it anymore and no one's going to give you more money and people are going to want more stuff up front and you're going to be in this difficult position where you ha something has to concede and if any one of those things breaks, your entire business could break. So that's the risk to brands and then it's, it's contagion when that happens, right? Like brands fall uh, and then there's less work for agencies, so agencies fall and it's like the best thing agencies can do is align themselves with the strongest brand they can find, right? And that's, I used to own an agency, Ridge bought my agency, now I'm the CEO of Ridge. Like, that's like our story, right? Now, I'm super paranoid, so I always do stuff three or four years before I'm supposed to, right? But like that's, I would recommend that playbook to somebody right now. If you're running a mid-sized agency or even a small-sized agency, if you have five employees, 10 employees or whatever, and you have your catering to six brands, you know one of those brands is great, four of those brands suck, one of them's okay. Find how you can align yourself completely with the best brand because they are going to survive that um, or they have the best chance of surviving that. And then for the brands, the best thing you can do is make the difficult decisions before you have to, right? You never want to have to do anything. You, you want to be deliberate in making the choices that you want to make to run your business. So no one wants to lay people off. You know, no one wants to default on suppliers or be the bad guy or cut off SaaS contracts or, you know, be irrational. No one wants to do that, right? Like it's, it's uncomfortable. It makes you like an asshole. It hurts your reputation, whatever, right? No one wants to do that. But it's better to do that when you don't have to do that than when you're forced to do that or, or go out of business, right? So um, just being maniacal about protecting your bottom line and your future essentially right so look ridge is still growing which i think we're, we're, we're super lucky that we're still putting up double digit growth year over year uh we're still profitable we're still growing profit double digits year over year uh but 
it's not a good time to get lazy. I could just be like, oh, things are fucking great. Like we're gonna be okay. Yeah, I'm going to uh, take razors out and cut up every SaaS contract I possibly have. And I'm going to battle to bring my costs as low as possible because I don't know what point of the cycle we're in right now. So I'm going to assume the entire world's gonna blow up and I'm gonna ride it all the way down to zero. Um, and it, and if, if things get better next week, I'm just in a better place because of it, so. I love it. I saw you po- repost a Mazalia po- uh, post about calling your credit card company or, or di- different ways that you can just shave percentages off service fees. And I've heard, I was talking with a friend of mine who sells SaaS and he was saying almost everyone's kind of coming to him with saying, I like this deal, but can you do it 20% cheaper? Or, you know, I just feel like everyone's kind of in that cost cutting mode. Can you give me an, an example of something that you've done as CEO being, as you say, a little obsessive about the news, obsessive about financial reports. Can you give me uh, something that you, like a decision that you've made in the business early that that you feel has really paid off based on some of the research that you've done into the space it could be stuff that you've done recently to prepare for this crisis or or even previously yeah i mean um we're just by the nature of our products somewhat isolated from all the supply chain issues right um our products are really small so we can air freight them when they're like when and even if air freight price is 4x or whatever i'm paying three dollars instead of sub one dollar to ship a wallet in or whatever but you know, we got burned in like 2017 or 2018. We had this massive tax bill because it's the problem when you're profitable, you got to pay your taxes. And we had lawsuits or whatever come up. So like we had to, it was a cash crunch. So we didn't have enough inventory through through 2018. That really hurt our growth. So since then, I've always kept over a year's worth of inventory on hand, which is like not Beck's practice. Like if you, if you would ask somebody in 2019, they would have been like, oh, you want one quarter worth of inventory on hand. You can always get more inventory. Until factories in China shut down, ports shut down, you can't get more inventory. So we we were totally, I mean, that, that's, that's probably one of the, the biggest wins throughout 2020 and 2021 is that we were fully stocked with our best SKUs the entire time. And a lot of people had a hard 2021. Our 2021 was way better than our 2020 because when everyone else was pulling back, we, we had inventory, we had marketing insight, we were able to double down. So, Are you pulling back now? Pulling back. Are you starting to pull back now? Like on the marketing spend, on the growth? Like have you pulled the reins up a little bit in preparation for what you perceive as a, a bit of a rough landing over the next several months? Um, so we've definitely found that like there is consumer sentiment is dropping and also online growth isn't there. So like what I mean by that is we're still growing online, but um, going back to the stock analysis, uh, when you're a professional stock trader, you're trying to achieve alpha, right? Which is beating beta. Beta is the market, whatever the S&P 500 does every single day, right? Uh, And so achieving alpha is getting better results than that, right? And so there's a lot of people who think they're really smart over these past five years or whatever because they're growing and things are going great or whatever. But in reality, they're just hitting beta. The entire market was growing. If you were selling home workout stuff in 2020, you're not a genius. You're just lucky. You know what I mean? Like, like that's 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 the reality of it, right? I have, I have a lot of friends who have home workout businesses. I think they're especially smart. I think they're doing a good job. But it's like right place, right time for most people's success, right? And now... We're in a down market, right? Not only, not the stock market, e-commerce penetration is going down. Less transactions will happen online this year than last year. So is your share of transactions going up? Like you, you really are competing for less space now. And because of that, we've definitely seen 
headwinds across the industry. I think everyone will admit that, that it's way harder this year than it was last year. So we are focusing on growing as strategically as possible. We're still putting up double digit growth that we're, that we're happy about, but uh, I'm not doing crazy campaigns. And then the future of Ridge is, is, look, there's a lot of wallet companies out there. I do not care about wallet companies. There's a lot of knockoffs out there. I do not care about them. What we're trying to build is Mont Blanc, right? So like our, our, our future is category expansion. So um, that's, that's the ads and the price we're trying to keep. And the premium. I, I saw another one of your posts here. You're asking of three different companies which will, would have grown the most, I guess, in the last five years. And I think it was it was Meta. I think it was Ralph Lauren. And it was another one. But the, the company that had done the best over this period was Ralph Lauren because it's this like prestige brand that just had, is this rolling thunder. Is that is that what you aspire to be with Ridge? Is just something like a, a really standout brand? I'm not that you're not already, but like a, a timeless classic brand like Mont Blanc you mentioned? Oh, 100%. I mean, uh, there's there's definitely uh, titans of of the space that I would love to try to be like them. So we look up to, I think Ralph Lauren does an amazing job. I think Yeti does an amazing job. Uh, I think Mont Blanc, they're owned by uh, Rich Mont, which is like a, a conglomerate similar to LVMH. They do an amazing job. And then James Purse, another person just doing an amazing job, like keeping themselves authentic as possible, not caring about trends coming and going and really setting the standard. So yeah, look, it's it's so easy to get hi- like hyper focused on who the fuck's knocking you off this week, right? But uh, as soon as you start looking down, you're not looking forward. <laughs> so that's that's what we're trying to do. Wrong size, wrong color, didn't look right in the living room. There are hundreds of reasons your customers return products, but returns don't have to be goodbyes. They can be an opportunity to complete the shopping experience. Built exclusively for Shopify, Loop lets you create a delightful return experience to attract and retain more customers. By making it easy for your customers to find products they love, they'll come back again and again. See why thousands of Shopify brands like Allbirds, Chubbies, and Brooklinen trust Loop as their return partner at loopreturns.com DTC. In some of these uh, marketing pivots, like what are some changes that you've made to how your marketing mix looks, say in the last six months? Have, have you diversification is is the thing I hear from most, uh, you know, CMOS and uh, founders really looking to, uh, you know, build their organic, really focus on their email, move budgets out of Facebook into TikTok a little bit. Like what what has your sort of uh, your marketing mix? How has that changed in the last little while? Yeah, I mean, another thing where like we're we're incredibly early to a lot of stuff. Um, like we've been diversified off of Facebook since 2016. Like we actually probably should have been spending more money and singly focused on growing Facebook when when it was still a good time to do it. But we we're always looking for the next thing. So I mean, we sponsor famously sponsor a ton of influencers, right? Uh, you know, for Father's Day, we had a thousand plus influencers go live, something crazy, right? Uh, we sponsor, I mean, we do TV, we do newsletters. You see us in the morning brew sometimes. So yeah, we're, we're incredibly diverse when it comes to the marketing channel. We're, we're spending on TikTok. We were the very first e-commerce spender on Snapchat. So yeah, we're spending all these fucking places. Uh, and then in terms of organic, we bought a company called everydaycarry.com. They're like a men's publication, basically. Um, we've worked with them for a really long time. They make cool posts about knives and gear and whatever. Um, and if we think the future of content is more authentic, then we needed to make a play in that space. And that's that's the play we made. And that's why I also think uh, BuzzFeed's incredibly undervalued right now. I mean, I think... 
Ridge could probably afford to buy BuzzFeed off the public market, which doesn't make a lot of sense. The current market cap of BuzzFeed is $224 million, which like, I, I, which people obviously have no faith in that brand or product or whatever, but they own Complex, they own a bunch of stuff, you know what I mean? Um, yeah, $300 million a month, right? So anyway, all I'm trying to say is if we think the future of content, the future of marketing or whatever, specifically as new generations get into it and as like content consumption changes, um, it just makes sense to try to be more authentic. And the best way for us to do that was through one organic platform like everydaycarry.com. I love it. It's, you know, it's very much what D2C is to our sister agency, Pilot House, right? We're a content operation that, that talks about the exploits of this performance marketing agency, and it's now helped grow their business, and now we have our own you know, standalone media business. I think about Lauren Kleinman and the, uh, the quality edit. Are you familiar with her? She runs uh, Dream Day PR out in LA, but she had started, she realized she was paying all these publications to do these whitelisted deals and to do these affiliate type deals. So she actually just made her own publication where now she runs huge budgets whitelisted from other brands through that that handle on Facebook and it's just like a review site essentially. And it's like, and then she's having clients pay for her to grow the quality edit uh, in visitors. So they get to keep those visitors. It's growing, it's organic. And it just seems like just a really smart idea at pilot house, you know, at the agency, we we've sort of uncovered a long time ago, the value of what we call third party brands or, or content brands that sort of cast light, either review brands or things like that. And it sounds like you've obviously made that connection as well uh, of content being absolutely essential to continuing the conversation about your products without always having to pay for it, right? hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. I, w- what they're doing is uh, is definitely exciting. I think I used to work with Lee, one of the co-founders of the Quality Edit. So glad, cool. glad they're doing well. Were, were you at Hawk or did you start Hawk? Didn't start Hawk. I was just at there. You didn't start Hawk. Okay, cool. Now, Eric and Tony started it. I think they're still in business. Uh, and now they have a good little group of graduates. So... Connor, my, my CMO was also there, both of us. I noticed a few other interesting posts. I, lo- I loved this post because I, I, writing is your superpower. Can you talk about that a little bit? Like it's something that I've, it, most of, of the good things that I've been able to pull together in my life, I feel have come from my ability to communicate well to others, to be able to write it down, to get people excited by my ideas essentially. And that kind of comes out through writing. How has writing helped your career? Nobody tells you this at CEO school or whatever. <laughs> is that like uh, 90% of your job is just going to be writing shit down? I mean, maybe it's because we're a remote first company, right? But like the only way I communicate with people is is uh, through written decks or Slack messages or tweets or, or emails or whatever, right? And being able to like quickly and concisely get your point across in a way that everyone buys into is 100% a superpower, especially, I mean, the, the world's more and more digital. And if you're like, oh no, like I'll just get good on camera or whatever. Yeah. You still got to write everything you're going to say anyway. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like it's just, it's movie magic when you watch a YouTuber and it seems like they're just crushing it. Like that's been meticulously written. And that's something like people I I don't think think about is most of the things you consume are going to be written by somebody. Uh, so you should get really good at it. Unless it's AI, which is, uh, another big one out there. You, you've got so many interesting positions on crypto as well. I don't know if we have time for all of these things. What what are you... I was just reading Jack's announcement the other day of uh, Web 5, I guess it is, right? Because he's taking Web 3 and he's adding 2 to it. Or it's, it's sort of skipping Web 4. You know, we've talked about the traditional system and how it's kind of finding a bottom 
uh, at this point, but it also feels like there's this burgeoning other system that's sort of like threatening to take off and change everything. How do you view, you know, the Web3, Web5 metaverse opportunity for, for a brand like yours? Uh, <laughs> I think people really like new things. <laughs> like, uh, people were all about AI. People were all about machine learning. People were all about chatbots. Like if you've been on the internet for, in the industry for the past 10 years, you, you'll see these same faces pop up and be like, this is the thing that's going to change everything. And, uh, Dude, Dali is one of the coolest things ever. I do not understand the commercial ramifications of that. But I, if I was able to, I would put all of my money into them and that team over any Web3 project. Because uh, what's coming out is is everyone's like, it's decentralized, it's the future, it's all this type of stuff. And then, then people slowly realize they really love centralization. They really love regu regulation uh, <laughs> because all those things exist for a reason. One of the most overlooked ones is DAOs, and there's like, no, no, it's voting based on your stake in it, and it's a financial stake. And I'm like, yeah, you mean like, you know, the thing we fought against in America for the past 300 years is giving people the right to vote without owning a house and shit. You know what I mean? It's like, no, let's 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 make it so if you want to participate in this, you have to put money into it, and that determines how much valuable your vote is. And it's like, I don't think people realize that like the populist nature. I mean, like you're you're going towards a guillotine moment when you, if if that really takes over, you're going towards the French Revolution. Um, and these are guillotine times, so we better let's <laughs> yeah, let's stay yeah. away from guillotine moments uh, during these days. I would say. Um, yeah, I think Dali, I'm blown away by like, and it's also, it's right there. It's like you, you type in words, you get these mind blowing images. I feel like, I feel like so much in the web three crypto space is still so abstract and, and they end up just having to say like, oh, it's decentralized. So it's better or it's trustless or it's, it doesn't have a middleman or all these sort of like broad terms. People understand in very broad strokes, what might be beneficial in that space, but they don't, but the nitty gritty of it is not nearly as easily uh, accessible as something like Dali, which has just blown everyone away. I think that just went public too. Like I think everyone can access dally now and fool around with it a little bit oh dude if everyone can get in please get in it's awesome um but yeah the last the last thing on the crypto piece you're right so i guess i have two two things to say the first one is yeah like there's general terms that they make you feel stupid for questioning and it's like yeah that's what i want in a community people who make me feel dumb right uh when i'm trying to learn it's like no one no one else does that if you want to learn e-commerce no one's gonna make you feel like an idiot or be like oh you just don't get it it's like no we'll explain it to you uh the other thing is the metaverse is real it's going to take over it's going to have a heavy gaming component it will be controlled by facebook <laughs> like like it or not like they're going to make the best thing everybody uses they'll probably they'll probably be a republican president who allows them to make acquisitions they'll buy roblox or the team that does Unreal Engine or something, they'll incorporate that into the Facebook platform through Oculus. And it'll be a better version of social media than we have now because seeing people's facial expressions and being able to converse over audio in like group settings is a healthier, more natural way to, to work. And it, it should avoid doom scrolling. I understand you're going to be wearing your thing and walking around, which is like, negative for different reasons, but it's going to be a more natural social media. So it's going there. Won't be decentralized. I don't know why we think 
that's the case. <laughs> like, no, Facebook's just going to own it and they're going to sell ads to it. <laughs> that's what's going to happen. Just more ad space, infinite ad space in the metaverse, right? Every surface can can be covered. It's. Uh, I have a couple friends who have, have had some big exits and stuff like that. They only use flip phones. They don't mess around with smartphones. They, their kids don't have smartphones or tablets. They're just like, they're living this other life. And I feel like the same thing will be true, true of the metaverse. It's like, if you get, if you win enough over the next five, 10 years, you won't have to be a, a farmer on the metaverse. You know, maybe you'll be able to do some business in it, but you won't have to be there with the, you'll be able to be in a real forest, right? And I, I think that's my goal in the next little while is to elevate myself so I don't have to farm the metaverse. Yeah, man. It, it's, yeah, <laughs> that's a good goal. Yeah, that's what I'm aiming for. Nice. I also, so I was checking out another post that you had about um, the types of founders that help people get from like different levels. A founder is zero to one, a promoter is one to 10, a scaler is 10 to 100. Uh, and an optimizer takes it to like those, the incremental levels once you get past a hundred kind of thing. And I, I just, it's from your experience, from your time in the space, it sounds like you are probably the first three, right? You're taking, you, you founded, you promoted it, you've scaled it. What, what do you think it takes to get to the next levels that you want to go to with, uh, with Ridge? Yeah, I don't, I don't say I'm really good at the, the middle two. There's a lot of like uh, prestige put on founders or whatever, right? Um, but like I didn't found Rich, right? I'm just running the hell out of that business. Uh, I found an agency business because that's what I was good at. And I guess like maybe there does take risks to just like quit your job and go do something like that. But like definitely, uh, I'm definitely really good at the middle two. Now, the optimization piece really when you think about public companies and if you listen to public company earnings calls, that's a team full of optimizers. They're really on there being like, we are going to increase our uh, net margin 1% over the next 12 months. And like, these are all the little systems we're going to do to get that done. So I do not have the patience to, to do stuff like that. <laughs> That's what it comes down to. And I, I'm not trying to like, I think we often talk down to the optimizers of the world, right? But like, there's amazing optimizers of the world, right? Uh, Tim Cook is, is an amazing optimizer and he's building an amazing business. And like, he's been able to take that thing and make it better every single year. And, and, make really hard decisions over a five-year time span. So like that's an amazing, if you're good at that, like you'll always have a job, people will always pay you a lot of money. But going back to Ridge, I think we're still very much in the third phase. I mean, we're, we're, still, we're still trying to scale this bad boy up uh, where until we're public, until we have a majority shareholder or whatever breathing down our neck to optimize the thing, I'm able to just keep making crazy swings that I hope, I hope have, have big payoffs, right? Yeah, that's what I'm working on. I love it. You mentioned, so you mentioned going public. That's an interesting one. I also saw a post that you made about the Black Rifle Coffee Company using a SPAC. And this is this is an area like special uh, purpose acquisition. I forget what the C stands for. Company. Company. Special purpose acquisition company. So can you just talk a little bit about the approaches to going public that people take, whether they do SPACs or whether they – because a SPAC is like a – it's a way that you can kind of go public without having to lay it all on the line as much. Like, Explain the difference to me between going public and doing it in a SPAC. Yeah. So a traditional IPO route uh, takes – a minimum of like a million dollars between like legal fees and, and whatever else, right? And uh, so where does that come from? It's like you need audited financials, you need everything else because you've been operating as a business for so long, right? But what a special purpose acquisition vehicle or SPAC or whatever, th what they do is they either acquire a, a, a dead company that was public, right? That has no operational history or they list themselves, right? With no operational history. They're just like, hey, we have $400 million, we're public now. And, they're allowed to do that, and and so it's extremely easy to to, to get listed because there's nothing 
for the SEC to audit. There's nothing for them to look into. They don't have to vet anything. It's just like, it's a brand new thing with $400 million. Great, you're gonna be listed on, uh, on a stock exchange. Where if Ridge wants to do that, the SEC is like, okay, where the fuck are your three years of audit financials? Like, give me give me a list of all the executives. Have they committed any crimes? Like, they really go over with a fine tooth comb because they want to protect the public from scams and rug pulls and whatever else, right? So a SPAC, you have a brand new clean thing, and you're like, we're gonna buy something. <laughs> That's the whole idea. We're gonna buy some sort of public thing, right? So the SEC could kind of rubber stamp that, get that listed, and now they have this money. And then there's like a, it's like a. It's a two-year time frame. I think it's technically four years, but but the the suggestion's two years to go out there and make an acquisition, right? So when Facebook decided to buy Instagram, they make that decision to purchase them. Then they tell shareholders, "This is we're we're buying them," right? Now there's regulators that might get involved from an antitrust perspective, right? But a public company is allowed to make acquisitions, right? Like it doesn't, it doesn't have to go through the SEC again to, to get all that done, right? It's just, it's yeah, that's part of operating, right? Um, so as the SPAC is a public company, it takes their capital and they can go buy any asset they want, right? And then that asset, uh, there's less rigorous standards of, of getting that asset into the company. So it's a backdoor way of getting a company who couldn't qualify to go public, be public, right? Um, because of that, like any backdoor, uh, it's just not checked. <laughs> it's like, so you can get legitimate scams. And the other thing, the other really predatory thing is that there's a reporting standard and threshold held to public companies when they do their projections. And if you ever see this, they get incredibly close to their projections every single time. You know what I mean? Like, and they have to come out ahead of time if they're gonna miss them, right? That's what Netflix did in January. They're like, hey, we think we're gonna miss our subscriber count by 200,000 or whatever. And then the earnings call comes out and they did, right? Because there's these reporting standards that like they have to be held to. But with SPACs, like I have $200 million, it's like, yeah, I'm gonna go buy the seven or the corner store, and I think I, I think I'm going to turn into a robot company. And if I turn into a robot company, it's going to be worth a hundred billion dollars. And I put that in a deck, and there, nobody's there to check that. <laughs> There's I, I can just go show that to people and be like, yeah, we're gonna, it's going to be a hundred billion dollars. And it's like you got to just trust me. And that's why they've been such disastrous results. And I was trying to pull an index today, actually, if any SPAC is over its list price. I don't think. There is one, but I'll have to look into it. That's interesting. And so the solution then is to somehow make IPOing a little more streamlined so that you can still have the diligence that comes in an IPO, but make it a little bit more accessible to people? Right. There's been a couple proposed solutions. There's something called a Reg A, which allows a company to solicit funds from the public, but the shares aren't listed on an exchange, right? So this is this is what originally what Spotify did. It was a Reg A or a Reg A plus. So the whole idea is how do you get public funds? So public being people, like not government funds, like me and you, into companies. like Kickstarter, but where you get stock. Yeah, yeah, exactly. How how do we do that? There's seed invest of the world or whatever else, and it's like. Uh, so getting that more widespread, maybe making a Reg A exchange, so like the the, the shares could be liquid, right? Sick. People already trade secondaries on like a Carta of the world, right? So that's like, all of that is like, how do we get more normal people to be able to invest in these high growth companies? So SPACs, that was the whole idea behind them, but like they, they really tainted the water there. Uh, Figs did something called an early IPO or something like that, where like they don't have to share all of their information. It's less rigorous to get them public, right? So there's like, there's been some stuff 
floated around. Maybe Reg A's take off, but maybe they continue to ease the IPO track. But really it's like the whole idea is that it's unfair to public investors that they aren't able to participate in off-market transactions, right? Like everyone wants the next Tesla or whatever, right? Um, so yeah, anyway, <laughs> I hope that helped. It does. I'm I'm still just scrolling your tick your uh, your your Twitter here and realizing that if I want you to come speak at event, I have to bill you as the Einstein of ecom. Is that, that's what you're going for these days, right? <laughs> yeah, this is funny, man. This is like a Sean Twitter review. I really like this. That's pretty uh, much all it is. I'm just going over your memes. I'm already just like stealing the memes that we're going to use in the newsletter. We're going to uh, credit you with them. But I love the one that you have about all these different metrics for how pe- people are judging their success, whether it's ROAS or ROI or TROAS or blended RAS. And what was the, and the final one you have here with the Winnie the Pooh in the, in the king's crown is just money, just yeah. the money in, right? That's the one that really matters. Yeah, totally. My, yeah, the, the actual money you have left over after operating your business, uh, which... I think people really got distracted by for the past couple of years, but now people are very much back in tune with uh, making extra dollars every day. That's the hardest part of running a business. Amazing. Uh, Okay, so if we were to give you, uh, let's call it $100,000. So say we were to say, okay, here's a $100,000 grant that you've got to use in the business in the next month. Where are you going to advise your team to deploy that $100,000 for maximum growth? So if it's a three hundred thousand dollars, I'm doing a very large influencer deal. That's what I'm gonna do with that. Uh, but like, those deals are very risky from a cash flow perspective. Like, look, we sponsored Travis Barker, PewDiePie, I don't know, Sniper Wolf. Like, we, we sponsored like all these like massive, massive people, and uh, it's really hard to get a direct ROI on that because like. You're talking about a massive lump sum of money up front. So many purchases have to happen, right? But there's views and spillover or whatever. So if I had free money, that's what I'd be doing. I'd be sponsoring very large influencers on a one-off basis. Um, and you mentioned Father's Day. You mentioned that you have a huge uh, influencer campaign probably launching now or, or over this past week. Any other, like, I guess Father's Day has got to be a bit of your Super Bowl, I imagine, for, for wallets. Is, is that accurate? Yeah, it's, it's, our, it's one of our, we have four peak periods. Father's Day is one of them. It's definitely a huge one. It's typically as big as the previous Q4. Very cool. And then, and to maximize it this year, what, the steps you're taking are a huge influencer campaign. Anything else you could uh, credit uh, that you're actually building out for this year's Father's Day campaign? Just more rapid product development. I mean, that's like, <laughs> Ridge has done a lot of things right, but I, I, I think a lot of people need to look in the mirror and understand what, what they've done poorly over the past couple of years, right? And, uh, the future of Ridge is a product development company. It's launching more things for our audience to consume, right? So like the reason why I say I don't care about wallet companies is like, yeah, we're currently the world's largest wallet company, right? But I'd much rather be the world's largest brand, you know what I mean? Which is like, it's like, it's, I, I'm a puddle compared to an ocean at that point, right? So that's, that's what we're pushing towards. Like how, how do we grow this brand to be bigger and bigger? And the best way you do that is make more things people want, pe- things people enjoy and want to come back and use. And you build out from the wallet, so it's got to be a a knife holster or a or a belt. You build out from that, right? Yeah, we have an awesome whole suite of product launches over the next, you know, probably twelve months. In twelve months from now, we'll look like an entirely different company, and that's something I'm excited about. Very cool. Well, we'll have you back on then, and we'll do a full Twitter review. Uh, thanks for coming on the DTC podcast today, Sean. Sick. Thank you so much, man. 
Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. If you're not a subscriber to our newsletter, you can do that right now at directtoconsumeralloneword.co. I'm Eric Dick, and this has been the D2C Podcast. We'll see you next time.